I almost feel like I need Sherlock Holmes music here or Pink Panther music. We'll take this. I love these guys. Love this music. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and great progress is being made here on several of the burning questions that face us that we have raised in this podcast. Why is Germany still rejecting nuclear power? The pieces of the puzzle don't really seem to fit together. We have some insight from a recent article in the Financial Times. We're going to discuss that. We also have answers or clues, shall we say, on what's going on with these mega mining companies, the top mining companies having these terrible PEs or very low valuations with very high dividends. I mean, they remind me of the oil stocks during COVID. Uh, during March 2020, when Exxon was trading at $30 a share and like 11 or 12% dividend. That was a buy, if I'd ever seen one. Uh, is it the same situation here? So Rohan Reddy, our future guest, gives us some insight on that because that is just something I just don't understand. I thought, as I was telling him, I thought we were in a commodities bull market. Well, what is going on with these stocks? And they actually look good, but the PEs are so odd. So... Rohan Reddy gives us some insight into that. So we're always glad to have him back. And also coming up, we have another Global Mining Symposium, and that is right around the corner. If you go to events.northernminer.com, you will see a place to register. Let me just load this up here. And you will see on May 25th and 26th, a little over three weeks from now, we are going to have another Global Mining Symposium. And you can register today recommend you do that sooner rather than later. And also, we're going to have a speaker series with Pierre Lassonde in Toronto. Don't forget the gourmet lunch that I love to describe here. And register now to get your ticket. It is $85. Okay, so do not miss the Mining Legends speaker series on June 8th with Pierre Lassonde. The last one sold out. You don't want to miss this. It'll be a networking opportunity of networking opportunities if you are in the gold or precious metals, or mining industry. You're going to get all the exciting people in Toronto gathered together and maybe from other cities too. And other than that, I mean, let's take a look at the markets here. I mean, what a week. It's What a few weeks. I mean, it, it's funny how the sentiment has shifted and people are down on gold, except for, you know, who's not down on gold? Gareth Soloway, our technical guy from three or four weeks ago, he is still bullish. I mean, gold is down at $1,862.20 per ounce. He said he's still not buying. He's waiting till between 1820 and 1850, and then he will buy. He said he's buying silver here. Pretty interesting. Bonds knocking on the door of 3%. I think yesterday they were just briefly above 3% intraday. You know, markets continue to look terrible. Oil still above $100 a barrel. Got uh, West Texas at $104, Brent at 106 And so, yeah, I mean, it seems, again, like it's like the best thing going for the stock market right now is the fact that so many people are cashed up right now. But it, it still seems like it's going to go lower anyway. But let's see. I mean, sentiment is terrible. Again, everything is kind of setting up if you're a contrarian to really look at, I mean, we put it all together. The dollar arguably has gone parabolic. Sentiment is terrible. This is a setup for things to go higher. But I guess, lest we forget, we have the Fed meeting today where they are expected to announce a half a point, half a percent rise in interest rates. 
So we don't have that information yet, but it's right around the corner. And so by the time you listen to this podcast, it'll probably be announced. So if you just looked at it purely objectively from a contrarian perspective, it looks like the dollar needs to come back down. It looks like stocks are stocks are a bit of a different story because they've they're starting to break certain technical resistances. So you could argue, yes, they're cheap on one hand. Yes, sentiment is terrible, but they are breaking, you know, a certain level. So maybe that's more of a muddled picture. But I do wonder with all this money on the sidelines, you know, if things start to look better, they could move up pretty quickly. Let's put it that way. So again, Gareth Soloway has a $2,400 target for the year on gold. So he is sticking with that and he likes what he sees. So that's pretty cool. So a wonderful show ahead of us. And we also have Dan Noon from G2 Goldfields coming up for our CEO spotlight. And he talks about working in Guyana. And it sounds like a fairly good jurisdiction from how he describes it. Yeah, so that's a pretty interesting interview that we have coming right up right now. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to... Dan Noon, CEO of G2 Goldfields. Joining us in this week's CEO Spotlight, I am very happy to welcome Dan Noon, CEO of G2 Goldfields. Dan, welcome to the program. Uh, Thanks very much, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So tell me about G2 Goldfields. What are you guys doing? What are you excited about? Uh, G2 Goldfields is a junior mining company listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange with the symbol GTWO.V. And we have projects in Guyana, and we have a high-grade gold deposit called the OCO deposit, and we recently put out a maiden resource estimate. Okay, awesome. Now, Guyana, that borders Venezuela, so we're in South America. And so just before we go into that, how, how are you finding working in Guyana? Guyana is a great mining country. It's got a long history from the 1870s gold rushes through till now. It's a continuation of the Greenstone Belt from Venezuela. It comes through Guyana, Suriname, down to northern Brazil. It really is the western half of the West African Shield, where there's been discovered over 300 million ounces, and it's underexplored. So we now have companies like Barrick and Newmont focusing on the Guyana Shield because it's where they believe they can find the next tier one asset. Yeah, and it's all about finding those big deposits. Okay, so tell us about the OCO project in Guyana. What, what are you finding there? Well, the OCO Aramu district is a high-grade vein district, first discovered back in the 1870s. And so we have 17 kilometres uh, of strike length along that under concession. We've drilled the OCO main deposit. We started drilling at the end of 2019, and we recently put out our maiden resource calculation, which has... 974,000 ounces at 9.25 grams per tonne gold inferred and 220,000 ounces at 8.63 grams per tonne gold indicated. And these are hosted within three coherent shear zones, which are numbered shears three, four, and five, and they're open to depth and shears four and five are open along strike. So we may say it was a bit premature to put out our initial 
made resource, but we wanted to put a marker down, you know, to show that we've got more than a million ounces there. And more importantly, that this is a deposit that's a higher graded. It's higher than eight grams a tonne, which in Northern Ontario has always been a good mine, no matter what the gold price. Yeah, that does sound very high grade. Now, what you've found so far, do you feel like you have a good idea of what's there or are you just getting started? Kind of where are you on this kind of discovery process? Okay, well, basically... To date, our deepest hole is 350 metres in shear three. And that shear three is 900 metres long. It's down to 350 metres. It's open down plunge, as are shears four and five. And the deepest holes we have into these shears, like I said, shear three, the deepest intercept is 14.3 metres at 8.2 grams a tonne gold. And the deepest intercept in shear five is 4.2 metres at 37.2 grams a tonne gold. So these are open down plunge. They're hosted within the actual planes of F3 folding, so wide open. And uh, our next phase of drilling here with three rigs is to take the depth down to twice as deep, down to 750 to 800 metres, with the idea of putting out an updated resource calculation at the end of the year. Okay, excellent. And you mentioned tier one before, and this term does get thrown out a lot, but do you think you have something that could be a tier one deposit? Most definitely in the district. So basically, we're just starting here. And like we say, it's probably early days to put out a resource. But we believe a you know, tier one asset is, according to Barrick, is five million ounces that can do half a million ounces a year. Now, generally, in an orogenic system, you'll need uh, two or three deposits along trend to be able to get to that 500,000 ounces a year. That's probably harder than five million ounces. But so we believe that we actually have 17 kilometers of trend here. We've just uh, recently put 11 drill holes into Oco Northwest, which is three and a half kilometres to the north west of the Oco main zone. We're also currently drilling up at the uh, Aramu mine trend, which is a four kilometre long trend with a series of high grade veins historically mined along there. So besides the Oco main, which we're taking to depth and also exploring for parallel shears, uh, we believe we should be able to find another deposit like the Oco main within the seven distinct target areas that we've defined to date. Okay, excellent. And I actually, I really appreciate how you mentioned Mark Bristow, because he did seem to come up with the term, and then people use it all sorts of ways, just to mean basically a great deposit. But you're absolutely right with your definition there. So, so that sounds pretty impressive. When is the maiden resource? Have you put it out yet, or it's about to come out? No, we put it out about 10 days ago. So... That's really mm -hmm. what we've been talking about to the street for the last uh, 10 days and continue to. We've got a site visit coming up on the 11th of May with fund managers. So we're starting to get noticed by our fund managers and by brokerage firms. We currently don't have any coverage, but we expect that to start coming shortly. There's a number of uh, banks who've indicated that they'll start coverage. So we think this is a real uh, turning point for the company and Maiden Resource will start to get coverage from the banks we'll start to get greater exposure. So there's a lot to happen this year. And we'll obviously starting, we'll be putting more rigs out on site to do a lot more drilling, which will generate a lot more news. I was about to ask. So, okay, so you got the maiden resource. Now let's shop it around and show, or at least tell people about it so that they can learn what's going on here, which again, multi, uh, it sounds quite uh, large. And so what is the roadmap looking out then, say six months, 12 months, or a couple of years? Like in a sense, like, do you hope to develop a mine? Where do you see this going? Uh, or at least where do you hope to see this goes? Well, you know, the, the team that is uh, G2 Goldfields was a team that was Guiana Goldfields, discovered that deposit, 
took it through feasibility, financed it, built it, and that was 6.5 million ounces. Now, that was a 10-year process, and uh, we don't really want to do that again. We think Kiana has developed enough that as we move the project forward, we'll be able to find another company who will want to mine it for us. And basically, you know, we do a transaction where we take their shares and we get bought out by someone else. But we see this as being an asset which will be seen to be uh, highly profitable and will fit into many companies' pipeline moving forward. So we think there'll be a number of opportunities to uh, uh, sell a project as we move forward. And we've certainly had interest from a number of corporates to date. Another aspect, like I think investors go, okay, this is sounding good. But back to the Guiana issue, how is it from a governmental perspective? Are you comfortable? Do you have good relations? People are always concerned in this, you know, increasingly. I mean, we saw Mexico just nationalize lithium. How are you feeling in Guiana? Very comfortable from a political perspective. As I said, we, we built a mine there previously. But also, Exxon has uh, made a massive oil discovery offshore. They've got 12 billion barrels to date, and they're in production. So Guiana this year had a its GNP increased by 50%. Uh, next year will be 28%, fastest in the world. Uh, there's only 750,000 citizens of Guyana living there. So this is a country wow. that's really uh, taken off and um, a lot of money coming into the coffers. So the government really doesn't have uh, financial strain on them. The gold sector has historically been the main producer of taxes for the government, but now it's completely oil. Uh, not completely, but obviously, majority of the taxes is coming from the oil. So we're starting to see infrastructure builds out into the interior. We think it's a great thing for the mining industry down there. And we always like Guyana as a district to work in. Uh, we think it's only going to get better. That sounds fantastic. So boiling it all down as we wrap up here, uh, what is the sell to investors? Is it a huge mine, high grade, good political jurisdiction? What is the sell? The sell is it's a high grade deposit that will be extremely profitable. We also, between now and the end of the year, we plan to double the depth of the mineralization on the Oco main zone, whilst continuing to explore the other seven targets that we have uh, within that 17 kilometres. So a lot of news flow, big opportunity for the company to grow rapidly here and release value. So over the next 12 months, uh, we see a lot of value being released and hopefully reflected in the share market. Excellent. Well, Dan Noon, CEO of G2 Goldfields. Thank you for joining us. It sounds like a wonderful project that you have going on in Guyana. Thanks very much, Adrian. And thank you again to Dan Noon, CEO of G2 Goldfields. And you can find them at g2goldfields.com. And turning to the website, I'm going to start with this Financial Times article, Why Germany is Resisting Calls to Ease Energy Crunch by Restarting Nuclear Power. And this does go a little ways towards explaining what we were trying to figure out in an earlier episode. Okay, let me begin. It sounded like a fair question. With sanctions against Russia likely to disrupt Germany's energy supply, why, asked MP Mark Bernhard, couldn't Berlin just restart its mothballed nuclear power stations? Quote, if we reactivate the three plants that were switched off last December, they could, together with the three that are still operating, replace all the coal we import from Russia or 30% of the Russian gas. End quote. The alternative for Germany MP told Olaf Scholz, Germany's chancellor, in the Bundestag earlier this month. This is another thing. Like, if the center doesn't grab the nuclear issue, the right, and, I mean, AFD, alternative for Deutschland or Germany... 
I mean, some people would consider it extreme right. Let's call it hard right, because I'm not looking to make a political statement here. I'm looking to describe it as best as possible. We'll call it the hard right. And Schultz's answer to Mark Bernhard was, quote, if the world were as simple as you make it out in your question, we'd have a very good life. Well, it's not much of an answer, though, is it? I mean, does it, it doesn't disprove anything. But this article goes further. Yet Bernhard is far from alone in raising the issue. Germany decided to phase out nuclear power after Japan's Fukushima disaster in 2011, and the last reactors were due to be shut down at the end of this year. But with EU sanctions now being imposed on Russia's coal and some demanding an embargo on its oil and gas, there are growing calls to plug the resulting energy gap with nuclear power. The government says it will not change its position. It cites technical reasons, but the biggest argument could be political, especially for the Greens, who control the economy ministry. Quote, it would be suicide for the Greens to say we were wrong about nuclear power, end quote, said Thomas O'Donnell, a Germany-based energy analyst and nuclear physicist. Quote, so they're forced to continue with the old battle plan, end quote. Could you imagine if that's true, that they're just basically, it's politically untenable? But what I think is like, say like my girlfriend, for instance, her uh, power bill went up 120 euros a month, which is close to $180 Canadian a month. And you know what? The German middle class doesn't make as much as North America's middle class. So eh, that's a lot of money for a lot of people. And what else is interesting is they kind of, some of them don't even really see it until halfway through the year or whenever they get their annual power bill. Anyways, my girlfriend just got the notice. So isn't this interesting here? Because they're saying politically the Greens can't go back on what they've been preaching for the last 10 years, but I would say politically they're running a very dangerous game here if people are paying uh, that much more per month. Now, as far as it being more complicated, G Germany's high dependency on Russian gas is particularly great in heat generation and in industry. Yet nuclear power plays no role in either. And this is interesting as well because we all, you know, people who are not experts in this, including myself, uh, we all go, oh, we'll just turn on the nuclear power and it'll solve all your electricity needs. But here they're saying nuclear power does not produce heat generation and is not useful for industry. I mean, it's a little hard to believe, but uh, that's what they say. The three plants that are still in operation don't make much of a contribution to Germany's energy balance. They have an installed capacity of just 4.3 gigawatts and supply on average about 30 terawatt hours of power per year, just 5% of Germany's total electricity production. Quote, there are some individual wind farms on the drawing board that have more than 4.3 gigawatt capacity. So they're basically saying they don't produce that much power. So, okay. And then there's the legal issues. Any decision to prolong their lives would require a new comprehensive risk assessment. And according to the government, the risks associated with nuclear power have grown. Witness the danger posed to critical infrastructure by cyber attacks. And then there's this issue about who is supplying the uranium. Now, I had talked about the uranium. And then remember we had, I think his name was TBCIV on YouTube comment saying, actually, Russia doesn't give the uranium, because I was saying, oh, well, they're just switching natural gas for uranium, so maybe they're just saying, what's the point in that? And then TBCIV said, well, actually, it comes from somewhere else, and it's refined in Russia. And so we hit that here. The three existing plants have no fresh uranium fuel rods that would allow them to continue operating beyond year-end, the government says. So they don't have any more fuel rods. 
New fuel would take 12 to 15 months to produce, and the earliest they would be ready is summer 2023. Russia is the second biggest uranium supplier to EU nuclear plants, according to Eurostat. So I was kind of half right here that actually Russia is a big uranium supplier to nuclear plants. But TBCIV had a point that it's the fuel rods are coming out of Russia as well. So Schultz referred to the issue in his duel with Bernhard, saying if the current reactor's lives were extended, quote, you would need new nuclear fuel, which just isn't freely available. End quote. The chancellor said, adding that nuclear reactors were not like cars that you just fill up when they run low on fuel. And this speaks to Rohan Reddy's interview that's coming up here, because he says, when I asked him what is he most bullish on, uh, spoiler alert, he said uranium. And so here's Schultz saying basically there's not enough nuclear fuel available. Now, finally here, the operators, the nuclear power plant operators also have an issue. The companies have made it clear they have no appetite to keep the plants going. Frank Mastio, chief executive of NBW, which operates Neckar-Westheim II, a German nuclear power plant, told the Financial Times a life extension beyond a few weeks, quote, is not possible with the technical setup we have today. Adding, quote, we have no legal framework whatsoever to run it one minute into the year 2023. It's beyond our control. So it sounds like there's a bit of a legislation issue here, right? Continuing on, E.ON, which operates ESAR2, takes a similar view. Quote, there is no future for nuclear in Germany, period, said Chief Executive Leo Birnbaum. It is too emotional. There will be no change in legislation and opinion. But you see, like he's saying there's no future. But when he says why, it is too emotional. You know, when I mentioned nuclear to my girlfriend, for instance, you know what the first word she said to me? Chernobyl. And I think a lot of people feel that way. It's just like, it's this, it's to Leo Birnbaum's point. It's just like, well, look at what happened with Chernobyl. And they don't want to see that happen here. The operators have also made clear that if an energy emergency arose and the governments forced them to restart the plants, they would insist it assumed all risks and costs. Quote, they're not prepared to encumber their shareholders with the disaster risks, said one official. But that kind of blank check could prove impossible for any chancellor to take on. It's like they can't get the insurance. Because if something goes wrong, they're going to be held financially liable. Quote, the problem is the operators just don't trust the government, said O'Donnell. To restart plants, they would need, quote, political guarantees that nuclear will continue to be legal in Germany, end quote, and the policy would not be reversed again in the future. A tall order for any government. So you see how bureaucratic and how everything is just getting tied in knots. And it really, like, is this coming down to insurance? Is this coming to liability? You know? So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because this is a issue we've been talking about for a few weeks now, and we have a little bit more of an explanation now. So hopefully you walk away a little bit more knowledgeable on how something so seemingly incomprehensible might be. Moving on, and this is to our aluminum theme, a big aluminum show last week. South 32 boosts Brazil green aluminum supply with bauxite mine by. And here we see the reddish earth that bauxite is found in. And, and again, a quick review of last episode, basically bauxite, from what I understand, is what is mined out of the earth and it comes out of a reddish earth, sort of reddish dirt is where you find it. And that gets turned into alumina. And from alumina, they turn it into aluminum. And it takes an enormous amount of electricity to do this. So this is by Henry Lazenby. 
And it says here, Australia's So32 is on track to double its green aluminum production in Brazil by early 2023 with the acquisition of an 18.2% stake in the Minercho Rio do Norto bauxite mine from Alcoa. The transaction represents a crucial step for the company in consolidating its vertically integrated aluminum supply chain in Brazil, bringing So32's holdings in the MRN mine to 33%. The attributable production from the Paris State operation is expected to satisfy the company's internal bauxite requirements. In addition to South32's 33% stake in the MRN mine, it holds a 36% share of the Alumar Alumina refinery and a 40% stake in the aluminum smelter. Right, so we can start to understand what that means now that we have a clue, at least, of what the relationship is between bauxite, alumina, and aluminum. So it's an alumina refinery and an aluminum smelter. So probably the bauxite gets refined into alumina, and from alumina, which I believe is a white powder, gets turned into aluminum at the smelter. As far as I understand, if you know better, feel free to drop us a line here at the podcast. And yeah, and then we have this green aluminum initiative. So you can read more about that on northernminer.com. Moving on, U.S. regulator sues Valet for false and misleading claims ahead of dam tragedy in 2019. Now, again, this relates to our interview with Rohan Reddy because I asked him about Valet and the other big stocks. And there's something like a PE of 3.6 on Valet and a massive dividend. Maybe this also helps explain it. It's by Naimul Karim. The U.S. Securities Exchange Commission has charged Valet SA with making, quote, false and misleading claims about the safety of its dams ahead of the January 2019 collapse of its Brumadinho Dam in Brazil, which killed 270 people. In a complaint filed in the U.S. District Court in New York, the SEC said, according to the SEC's complaint, the mining giant, quote, manipulated multiple dam safety audits, obtained numerous fraudulent stability certificates, and regularly misled local governments, communities, and investors about the safety of the dam since 2016. Furthermore, the complaint alleges that Valet knew, quote, for years that the dam, which was built to contain potentially toxic byproducts from mining operations, did not meet the internationally recognized standards for dam safety. But Valet's public sustainability reports and other public filings assured investors that the company adhered to the strictest international practices, the SEC said. This is like quintessential greenwashing, isn't it? One of the world's largest iron ore producers, Valet, denied the SEC's allegations, including the ones that claimed that its disclosures violated the U.S. law and said that it would, quote, vigorously defend the case. Quote, the company reiterates the commitment it made right after the rupture of the dam and which has guided it since then to the remediation and compensation of the damages caused by the event. So quite the mess over there. And just a few headlines as we close here. Glencore Hale's trading unit outlook cuts copper guidance. And this is by Cecilia Jamasmi, miner and commodities trader Glencore touted on Thursday prospects for its trading unit, saying it faces another strong year as Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to drive up prices of most commodities the company mines and sells. And yeah, again, and scrolling down a bit, Glencore shares traded above its IPO price for the first time since 2011. So Glencore is doing well. And finally, Sandstorm Gold buys two royalty firms for $1.1 billion dollars. And they bought Nomad Royalty and nine royalties in one stream from Basecore Metals. And a lot of people like the royalties because they don't have the same kind of risks, uh, energy risk, 
Jurisdictional risk may be a little bit, but a lot of people make the argument that they're a little bit more safer from the vicissitudes of the markets and of operational risk, we might say. And finally, Escondido holds top spot on the list of the world's biggest copper mine. And that is BHP's Escondida copper mine in Chile. And with that, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on May 3rd, gold is trading at $1,859.67 per ounce. That is $46 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.64 per ounce. That is $0.95 lower than last week, and platinum is trading at $952.48 per ounce. That is $30 higher than last week, and palladium is also higher at $2,262.55 per ounce. That is $14 higher than last week, and turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.45 per pound. That is $0.05 higher than last week. Aluminum is trading $0.02 lower at $1.38 per pound, and lead is trading $0.04 cents lower at $1.03 per pound. Nickel is trading $0.10 cents lower at $14.71 per pound. Tin is trading at $18.51 per pound. That is $0.15 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is unchanged at $36.97 per pound. And zinc is $0.03 cents lower at $1.91 per Per pound. So what do we see? I mean, as Rohan Reddy says, it's a bit of a risk-off trade out there. There's a lot of fear that everything's just going to go down. Uh, we see a lessening of demand, particularly out of China. And I've been hearing in various quarters on podcasts that it's actually pretty dramatic. I think Leland Miller of the Beige Book was on surveillance yesterday of the China Beige Book. And he was talking about how it's it's quite something what's going on with demand dropping in China. So as Rohan Reddy says, as China goes, so goes copper. So those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs, and he comes back on the program. He is based in New York, and he gives us all sorts of insights on the dollar, commodities markets, what's going on with these mining stocks, and more. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Rowan Reddy, now Director of Research at Global X ETFs. Rowan, welcome back to the podcast, and congratulations on your promotion. Thanks a lot, Adrian, and great to be back again. Well, it's great to have you, and I'm sure it's well-earned. We're always really interested in what you have to say here on just the commodity markets in general. It's always very insightful. So there's been, a, for me, a bit of a burning question that's been on the podcast here for a couple of weeks now, and that's what's going on with these top mining companies. And I know you don't comment really on individual 
stocks. So I, I'm not asking for that. But I, just a, for example, I see like a BHP at a PE of 10, dividend yield of 10.5%, Rio Tinto PE of 5, dividend yield of 11%. And I don't really understand what's going on because I thought there was like a big commodity trade. So I'm not asking you to talk about those companies, but you see it across. I mean, and finally, like there's Valet, which is the most extreme, 3.67 PE, dividend yield of 15%. Do you know what, like, I, I, you know, I don't know what's going on there. Do you? Well, I think some of it has been some of the issues we've seen recently with the Russia-Ukraine war and the fact that there is this political crisis that previously was priced into some of these stocks. But I think now a lot of these investors are coming to terms with the fact that that risk might be a little bit more enhanced than we've seen in the past, whether it's single property risk, whether it's legislation on the horizon. We've seen issues in South America, for example, with certain governmental changes that may necessitate terms with minors that may change, or whether it's nationalization risk or something along those lines. And then also, I think the other issue has been the big drawdown that we've seen. So BHP, for example, has dropped about 15% peak to trough over the past uh, you know, few weeks or so. And some of that is because of the COVID issues in China and the impact to the global economy. And if you're you know, like a copper stock, for example, China is about half of global copper demand. Um, and then also just a general risk-off trade with the fact that the Fed is probably going to be a lot more aggressive in hiking rates. So you know, if we do see at the next meeting, uh, a rate hike of anywhere from 50 basis points to 100 basis points, that could be a bit of a headwind for some of these mining stocks. So a lot of these issues are starting to get priced into the shares. That's really interesting. And it makes sense. As you say, the risk off trade, which there's no doubt everybody, I mean, I almost think the best thing going for the stock market right now is the fact that everybody is so bearish, if anything, you know, like everybody is bearish now, it seems. And so you're basically saying this is a bit of a political risk situation. Maybe people, for example, have properties in Russia uh, or whether it's you know South America where things are getting potentially nationalized. I mean, I don't know if you saw that story with Mexico nationalizing lithium. Did you see that? Yeah, and again, these are risks that could come up all over the world. Like we saw it in uh, Serbia as well a few months ago. Um, this is the kind of thing that these days with COVID kind of hampering a lot of the uh, fiscal balance sheets of these governments, they're going to look for other ways that they can you know, monetize different aspects of uh, their economy. And so these risks, I think, are going to be a little bit more prevalent than what you've seen before. Yeah. So it seems to me that in a sense so far, and this has rang true for a lot of the last 10 years, that in a sense, when you are investing in a commodity bull market, that the actual metal seems to be preferable to the stocks. In, in theory, it shouldn't be. In theory, you should get leverage. But in practice, that seems to be how things have turned out, generally speaking, with little exceptions to that rule. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? I would say uh, if you are in the right pocket of the market. So a good example would be, I think, uranium uh, is one where if you get the right um, you know, commodity that has exposure to other areas of the market that you know might be insulated from certain parts of these risks, you could get that leveraged aspect of the trade. And right now, a lot of the macro environment actually helps with that because inflation is pretty high, as we know. And also the prices, as you said, of a lot of the underlying you know, metals and commodities have done well. But there are also other 
you know, times where right now we have seen political risks start to pop up and just the Fed starting to raise rates. So they those have uh, hurt some of these, whether it's like copper mining stocks or uh, even silver miners with uh, some of the properties around the world that are in areas that have been a little bit more problematic. So I do think uh, long term, I would still, if you like the environment where the metal is going to go up, I would still prefer to be in those underlying leveraged um, commodity stocks, but at the same time, there certainly is uh, right now, I think, a bit of a headwind with that thesis. Yeah, fair enough, and and that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, now, moving on to, say, uh, commodities and the dollar, there, there's something that maybe you can help me with, uh, shed some light on. it. Tell me what you think of this. Like, It seems the strong U.S. dollar, which arguably is going parabolic, but it, or at least is very strong right now against other currencies, at least. Is the U.S. dollar masking the how much the commodities are going up? I do think right now there is some level of uh, just the fact that the dollar has risen so much recently, because basically last year the Fed was not hawkish really at all, aside from maybe the understanding from the market that you know, things could start to get a little bit more uh, hawkish in the future, even though they hadn't actually raised rates. Now, it seems that the Fed has gone a lot more aggressive and central banks around the world, too, have gotten a lot more aggressive in their rate hiking policy. So right now, the futures curve is pricing in what seems to be an astronomical like 8 to 10, 25 basis point rate hike. So that could be a huge level. And that is a headwind to commodities because you know, a lot of these commodities are priced in dollars, right? So for emerging markets, if the dollar starts to go up, that starts to become an issue in terms of demand. And also we're seeing, you know, a lot of these economies have not recovered from the COVID-19 pandemic. So they're facing a little bit of a double whammy from that aspect. So I think what you've seen right now with even though a lot of commodities have gone up in value this year and the miners too, the reality is there is going to be a lot more hawkish central bank policy. And that is why you have seen some of these steep drawdowns over the last few weeks. Yeah, because I don't know if you saw that. I imagine you did. Like the producer price index in Germany was over 30%. And I assume, well, they're in euros. So like in a sense, their commodity prices aren't like aren't being as masked as the U.S. And here the U.S., we're seeing them go up quite dramatically over a period of few months. In Europe, you're, you're seeing it even more intense because their currency is going down against the U.S. dollar. In other words, if the U.S. dollar was weak, this would be even worse, right? Well, uh, a lot of times, if you look at uh, the way in history, the markets have started to move and economies and like just monetary policy has started to move. Usually there is some level of if some countries are facing this, other countries will too, because a lot of the interconnectedness of the global economy. But yes, to back up your point, uh, if it were moving in the opposite direction from the U.S. side, that would, of course, add a little bit more fuel to the fire and it would probably make inflationary pressures even higher. I think relating it back to today, the one thing that's actually kind of balancing the economy and the one thing that you know could have stopped this from you know becoming even worse in a sense is China is still lagging behind right now just because they're the second largest uh, economy in the world and they're facing issues right now with COVID. There's lockdowns. And so their factory data and a lot of their economic data has started to subside. Uh, and so that is actually providing in some sense, um, a ballast to the global economy from you know going parabolic on inflation numbers. Yeah, and again, that's kind of like what 
freaks me out a bit is we still have pretty high numbers. I mean, copper has drawn down and maybe let's talk about more individual metals so we can get your expertise here. So uranium has pulled back quite a bit. I just looked at the chart or at least, you know, what looked like 20% or something. You know, this is a pretty rudimentary chart here. It was something like 65 and then it went back to 53 according to this internet chart. So maybe a 20%. How are you feeling about uranium? I mean, you have a pretty good idea of that market. How are things going there? Yeah, this is still one where, you know, it's going to be volatile up and down. We've seen that over the last few years, but this is really just a short-term pullback right now. I think at the end of the day, in these types of risk-off environments, uranium is going to follow in the short term. But Long-term, we still are very bullish on the prospects for uranium. I mean, a lot of the macro tailwinds going for it are which is adoption of renewable energies and these clean energies and the fact that it is hard to move directly to solar and wind. And so uranium is a nice middle ground. And so, you know, we have seen that even in Europe, uh, there'd be even more support for nuclear power than there has been in prior years, whether it's stopping phase-outs or just integrating nuclear power into you know, energy plans and moving away from Russian uh, fossil fuels and natural gas. So right now we are seeing um, a lot more momentum for uranium than any issues that have, uh, you know, happened with the latest pullback, where if you look at, you know, even some of these names like BHP we mentioned, where there was about a 15% pullback, uranium is right in that uh, ballpark too. So it's tracking a lot of the global commodities right now, but we still do envision that in the long term. There is going to be demand for electricity. There is going to be demand for nuclear power. And a lot of the uh, nuclear power plants that are being built are from large population centers like China and India. And once you start to get those uh, plants off the ground, that is something that proves to be a long-term benefit for the market. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting what you're seeing out here in Europe. I mean, France seems to be uh, ramping up their nuclear energy, from what I understand. And Germany is still refusing, who is probably the most exposed to Russian energy, they're still refusing. And I was looking at an article on the Financial Times. I don't know if you saw that, where they were trying to explain it. It's because the Greens in Germany had been talking against nuclear power for the last 10 years. So it was too much of a political, it was too much of an about face for them to turn around and say, actually, nuclear power is a good idea. Did, did you see that at all? Or do you have any thoughts on Germany there? Yeah, it's it's something where if you were to have asked me uh, just before the Russian-Ukraine uh, war that happened, I think we all could have seen the writing on the wall that there would have been sanctions that would have come up and just a heavy reliance on Russian natural gas. Like 40% of all of the EU's energy comes from Russian natural gas. So that is you know major supplier risk. And when you add all these sanctions onto it and the fact that like a lot of these Western economies in Europe still need to be aligned against uh, you know, some of the issues coming out of Russia politically, there was almost a writing on the wall that there was going to have to be an about face and a change in some of the energy policies. What I was a little fearful of is whether this was going to move more towards like something like a coal where it's cheap, um, it's very well defined and like you can kind of turn it on and off pretty quickly and that it wasn't going to go towards other sources like nuclear power. But Again, a nice middle ground. I think this is where, you know, even if you're in the greens or uh, opposed to nuclear energy in Germany, the reality is like a lot of the um, sensitivities around it have changed over the last few years. And so we do believe, and I think even like Germany and like other countries do believe in Europe that 
this is an area where, at least for the short term, you can start to not phase out some of these power plants. But even in the long term, uh, you know, as long as you have a plan for it in place, it really does fit in well to the energy mix. Okay, excellent. And let's just tackle, if we can squeeze it in here, what else is going on in the energy mix? So oil, I haven't looked. Let me just take a look here. Oil is trading at $101 uh, for West Texas, Brent crude, 103 Any thoughts on the oil markets? Because I know you do study them somewhat. Yeah, a lot of it is tracking inflation you know, over the last uh, few months and past year. And a lot of it has also been super supportive from OPEC policies because they haven't really ramped up um, production quite as much as you would have expected. I still think there is some of the hangover from the last, you know, seven, eight years of the major drawdowns in oil prices that happened. So they're being very prudent about how they raise uh, production and how they basically get a little bit more aggressive with some of their production policies. So they are, you know, legging this out um, over the course of, you know, a number of months. And they really charted this from the beginning of COVID that this was going to be a multi-year process for them in terms of getting production back to pre-pandemic levels. Now, what happens when countries like the United States and OPEC start to raise production? I think really it's going to fall on demand then to be, you know, a lot more of a driver of oil prices moving higher. So, even though the global economy looks very strong right now, some of the pullback that you've seen recently has been because of China, even though it hasn't been a sharp pullback, but it has been partially because of China. But what's really been driving this market right now is the fact that production really hasn't you know, ramped up to the level that you would have expected, even with triple digit oil prices. So ultimately, that will start hmm. to happen. And when it does happen, um, there's going to be, I would say the emerging economies are really going to have to be the ones that step up to drive prices. But right now, we're guiding investors and saying, you rather would not play the actual commodity price itself, because it has been swinging up and down from this like, you know, $100 level quite a bit. So we do prefer pipeline stocks in that regard, just because they're going to benefit from higher production, whether it's in the U.S. or Canada. Now, tell me about industrial metals. Uh, copper looks like it's fallen out of bed. Do you think this is kind of, a, again, a result of this China and kind of risk off trade for the most part? Exactly. Yeah, there's a saying in copper, as uh, China goes, copper goes. And so we've seen that uh, proved uh, time and time again. And so you know, even though China was very um, dovish in their monetary policy, which was a bit of a change um, compared to some of the other uh, central banks around the world, it hasn't been enough to kind of boost the economy just because there are these lingering credit issues in the real estate market and just the entire you know banking system. And then they had this issue that came up recently with the lockdowns and the COVID issues. So you've seen that filter into economic data. And so that's why copper has been falling off quite a bit. I do think uh, one thing that could start to drive prices towards the upside is if we do start to see, you know, policies that are kind of negative towards some of the producers, whether it's in South America or other parts of the world, and they mm. either renegotiate royalties or kind of change some of the terms that were there before from pre-existing governments, that could balance out prices a bit. But again, I think the real driver is going to be number one. How does the dollar fare? Uh, we spoke about it, about how the dollar has been pretty strong recently. That's also been uh, hurting copper prices, but also, you know, whether there is a recovery in China and how the GDP numbers and PPI numbers and like factory numbers hold up from here, because that has been uh, moving prices to the downside. But we do think, you know, right now we are, I would say probably if you were to use a baseball analogy in the seventh uh, inning of this cycle, 
there is still a little bit of a ways to go for copper, whereas usually it does historically do um, pretty well late cycle. Yeah, I think I remember Jeff Curry, the Goldman Sachs commodities guy. I think he was super bullish on copper, at least in the mid to long term. Now, and just as we wrap up, gold and precious metals, some people are feeling kind of bearish that gold hasn't performed. Silver generally follows along for the most part. We had Gareth Soloway on a few weeks ago, and he's still super bullish. Uh, where do you sit on all the gold trade? Yeah, gold has been, I think if you're a commodities analyst, probably one of the most frustrating commodities to analyze because it hasn't really performed exactly as you would have expected for most of this cycle, frankly. But I do think, uh, number one, dollar being strong, and number two, the fact that there has been a lot of volatility in the markets. And the thing that adds a little bit of fuel to the fire is, you know, this is it may sound a bit outside the box, but Bitcoin has also been taking a little bit of market share away from gold uh, over the last few years. And so the fact that Bitcoin has been performing as a, you know, uh, risk on type of investment over the last uh, few months and you know even past a year or so compared to uh, what we've seen in the equity markets, you could start to see some renewed confidence in gold. And so I would say uh, as an investor, like, there probably is a little bit more upside than downside risk in the gold markets right now, because if you look going forward, there's probably going to be somewhat of an economic pullback um, once we start to hit that peak cycle level. And for an investor, gold does look like a good place to park your money right now, combined with the fact that the dollar is pretty strong. So I would say as an investor, not maybe my top commodity pick, but certainly an area where you could see some upside. And final final question very quickly, what is your top commodity pick? We still really like uranium a lot, uh, even though it okay. has pulled back a little bit recently. If you look at the past cycle when prices hit you know, $140 a pound, there's a lot of the same like tea leaves and inklings that are happening right now. Uh, a lot of adoption of you know nuclear energy and the fact that you know, we haven't seen supply really get to the point of being able to support demand. And a lot of these companies are still pretty conservative with some of their uh, production profiles and just spending more on CapEx. So I still think right now, uh, if you're an investor uh, moving into the next even like one to three year horizon, um, uranium would still be my top pick right now, just because it's got a lot of the like secular tailwinds of moving away from fossil fuels and into a cleaner power source like nuclear energy, but also supply really is not keeping up right now. And it does take a longer amount of time compared to other commodities to bring some of that production online. Fantastic. Okay. I know you need to go, Rowan. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. This is Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at Global X ETFs. Thanks a lot, Adrian. there you have it another episode of the northern miner podcast do not forget we have the global mining symposium coming up on may 25th and 26th just go to events.northernminer.com to register today if you want to help out the podcast leave us a review in the apple podcast directory until next week take care